Good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25. As the kids go out to age-appropriate teaching once again, so thankful to God for these children and how they show us in Jesus' words what it looks like to enter the kingdom like a child, humble. And so I pray that the Lord blesses those workers as they seek to care for those children. And I pray that we sense his presence with us now as we look at Psalm 25. While you're turning there, uh, just to catch you up to speed, a couple of things. Uh, One is uh, we are uh, at the beginning of the year and every year in uh, January, we are seeking to remind one another of uh, who we are as the church. And so we're in a series entitled, We Are the Church. And one of the things that we do at the beginning of the year is encourage one another to dive into God's word and in prayer. And so uh, whether you began on January 1st or whether you haven't even started, I just encourage you to make it a daily practice to open up God's word and to meet with him there, to know he loves you and that he delights to meet with you day in and day out. And we also have given you not only several Bible reading plans you could choose from, but we've also given you a sheet on how to pray for the entire church um, about three times a year. So we're doing it once a quarter. And so that if you don't have that, um, it should be at the table outside. We would love for you to take that and just make it a pattern uh, to pray for one another throughout this year. So as you have uh, been turning to Psalm 25, I want to read this psalm and in its entirety, and then we will uh, continue in prayer in God's word. Following Pastor Ron Jor's lead, if you're there, say I'm there. I was weak, but I'm glad you're there. Here we go. Psalm 25, word of God says this. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies rejoice or exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. They will be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me because you are the God of my salvation and for you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord our steadfast love and faithfulness, every one of them, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, because it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? It's him that you will instruct in the way he he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me because I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of distresses. 
Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, as we continue in prayer with the psalmist, we just say, please, Father, help us to know you. You are with us right now in power, in love and affection. We are in your presence and there is fullness of joy to be had. So, Father, be our peace and comfort. Take your word. Guide us, strengthen us, that we might see you and love you with all of our heart. Please, Father, work in these moments for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I was over at my parents' house um, and... Rob Rolak and his kiddos were over there in the backyard and they were playing. And so we were all over there and my dad was uh, contemplating shooting off fireworks in the backyard. (laughs) Just how my dad rolls. And so we were back there and the kids were playing and we were having a good time. And uh, little Makai said something to his daddy and said um, something about going to church. And then he was going to sprint off and run and play. And Rob stopped him and he said, son, do we go to church? And you could tell Makai stopped. He said, son, do we go to church? Little Makai got a little sheepish and then it clicked. It's like, no, we are the church. And then he ran and played. What a beautiful lesson. To prioritize drilling into your kids in kind of everyday moments. Good parenting has some of these. For you who have kids, what are yours? Would it be this one? I'm glad this was part of Robin Carissa's because it helped me. We don't go to church. We don't do church. We are the church. When you think of church, the word you should think of is people, family, body, connectedness, the church. We are the church. Why is that important? Because the church is not an event to attend or an activity to do. It's a people to be with and to love, a people to listen to. A people to eat with, to laugh with, to cry with, to pray with and for, and to gather with weekly. We are called Jesus' body. That means there's a connectedness that we have, his family. The church is Jesus, a Jesus-loving people who gather to be with and to love Jesus and to love each other because we've been loved by Jesus. It just changes what we're doing right now. We're not attending to consume. We're coming to be with uniquely the God who says, I'm with you. 
Two or three are gathered. I'm there in a unique, precious way. And there's a one anothering happen. There's people beside us and in and around us. Gifts to us, inhabited by the Spirit of God. And that matters. Not only when we gather, it matters when you do community groups in homes. It matters when you pass each other on the street. It matters when you're at the park. It matters. God alive and at work in his people. There's a difference. And it's beautiful. Jesus is with that person. And he's with us right now. Every January, we want to remind ourselves who we are. We are the church. Who is the church? A Christ-treasuring people who gather together in God's presence to be and make disciples, who proclaim, portray, and protect the gospel. We are the church. And the church is meant to be characterized by kind of these four pillar things, which is what composes the four sermons of this, this January. And that is the, the church, the people of God, are a Bible-saturated church. We're a Bible-saturated people. We're a praying people. We're a same-minded people. And that same-mindedness means we love each other and we're unified. That's next week. And we're also a loving people. We love those who do not know Jesus. Last week, Pastor Ron Jordan did an amazing job walking us through Psalm 1 on what it looks like for us to be a Bible-saturated people. And today we get the privilege to look at what it means to be a praying church. A praying church. And now before we dive into Psalm 25, we need to understand these two things, word and prayer, are inextricably connected. If you glue two pieces of paper together with really good glue, I'm not talking about like that rub-on glue, you know, that's in the sticks that sometimes you could just sneeze at and it falls apart. I'm talking about like that Gorilla Glue glue, the stuff that sticks it together. You put two pieces of paper together, you let it sit there for four days, and then all of a sudden I ask you, rip those things apart. What's going to happen is you will not get two equal sheets of paper from there forward. When you rip it apart, there will be shreds and shards and stuck together. This is the word in prayer. You will not get them apart, and you aren't supposed to. They're meant to be connected. What do I mean? The word is not meant to be read without prayer. Because the Bible is not simply to be read and studied as a book. It is meant to be read as a relationship. We are the church. We are the people of God and we meet with a person, Jesus Christ, who is among us. The goal of God speaking to us is worship and trust and enjoyment of him. And that's what happens every time we open up his word. He is saying, I am here. If you've been away from your spouse or a dear friend a child, and you get a letter from them because you've been away from them for a while. When that letter comes, you are not just trying to understand facts. There's emotion that comes with that letter. You're wanting to get to know that person because you love them so deeply. There's this sense of it feels almost like you're talking to that person as their emotion and love comes off of those pages. 
And it's not just a feeling when you're in his word. I've told my kids for years, when you open up the Bible, this is not just any book. This is an alive book. These are living words. God on every page by his Holy Spirit, making himself known to us, speaking to us. As Pastor Ron Jor said last week, and it was so resonating with my heart, just if you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. This is him talking to you. It's an alive book, and I can make it so mechanical. Can't you? Can't we make it a transaction? We know it's good for us, so we do it. We read these words. We get a few nuggets of information. We check off the box, and we move on. Did my duty. Maybe even applied it a little bit. It's going to be a good day. But the Bible has been given to us for a relationship. A relationship. A relationship is what makes it healthy. If you knew you were supposed to spend time with somebody, you know that. Like, okay, I love them. I need to spend time with them. If all you did, all the time you interacted with them, you see them on the couch, you go sit on the couch, you don't say any words to them, you put on headphones. You sit there for 20 minutes, and then you leave. Did you spend time with them? Technically, yes. But is that the point? No, it's not. That's give and take moment here. No, Sean, it's not the point. Thanks, that's great feedback. It's not the point. The point is interaction. A healthy relationship is built on conversation and listening so that then you can have those moments of just sitting. And being, the shoulder-to-shoulder time, when words are not necessary because you just know you love each other. This is God's word. His word is the place where you meet with him, where you hear his voice, where you are reminded of his love. And his word is where you pray. Right? Like when you read his word and you don't understand what you're reading. How many have been there? Okay, good, good. Hands, look at that. Well done. Participation, we're rolling. When your hand goes up, it's like, I don't understand this. What do you do? You can either think to yourself, I don't understand this, or you can go to the God who gives understanding. So downshift from learning mode and say, oh God, help me. Help me understand. I don't get this. And keep reading. The word is meant to be accompanied by prayer. What happens when he stirs something in your heart and all of a sudden you're reassured that he loves you? What happens when you're reading in those moments? You just sit there with him. You don't have to keep moving on. You can just sit and know that he loves you. Part of reading the word in prayer is just, oh God, I need that love in me. Fill me up. Fill me up prayer it's a conversation and it might even be thank you thank you that you love me prayer what happens if you read something that challenges you it presses on you and you know I'm not quite lining up there or I'm not even sure I want to do what he's saying I should do you pray oh God get my heart where it needs to be oh God help me want what you want it's word and prayer inextricably connected Prayerfully read the word. 
prayerfully read the word. And when you pray, pray the word. How many have ever stopped to pray and you have no idea what to pray? Well, first of all, just share your heart. It doesn't have to be a script. It doesn't have to sound fancy. It's actually better if it doesn't sound fancy, but it's you because he wants you. But our prayers are also meant to be accompanied with truth. Where do you get truth? You get truth from the word. And when you're in the word, you begin to know who God is and you can say back to him who he is. The content of your prayers, the confessions of your prayers are shaped by the word. Prayerfully read the word. Pray the word. When Jesus describes his house, he says something really interesting. When he describes his family, that's us. The place where he dwells, that's us. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7, and he says, For my house will be called what? A house of prayer for all peoples. Let it sit with you. When we say we are the church, we are Jesus' church, he says we are by definition a relating to God people. We are a relating to Jesus kind of people because it's his house. It's where he dwells. That's our definition. That's who we are by essence. And it's a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have been changed by his love. We're going to be characterized by talking to him. He wants us, and he uses household imagery because he wants us, and he loves to talk to us, and he knows us. He understands you. This week, my second oldest son, Jaden, he is processing and praying about what God might have him do in his life, and we ended up hearing about uh, this woman who does a career assessment. So basically, you take a, about an hour and a half test, and it's not a test, like a questionnaire. Don't get scared about it. And uh, took a questionnaire, and as he, after he finishes the questionnaire, submits it, and then spent, we spent like three hours with this lady as she began to process what the results of this questionnaire would be. What are, what are the values that are driving him, and what are his loves, and what are things that he would not enjoy doing. And in the first five minutes, there was this sense of, like my wife said, She's reading his mail like she was like putting phrases and words on who he is just by kind of following this questionnaire. And it was just like so comforting to know like you've been seen and he kind of gets you and and like you're known and like exponent times 10 million is the invitation to pray. You're known. You're loved. In his presence is fullness of joy. This is our God. You want someone who can understand you when your husband or wife or roommate do not? Jesus says, I see your heart when no one else does. I am dependable and trustworthy when everyone else falls and fails. I am for you in ways that no one else can be. When you doubt, I have demonstrated that I definitively love you because I gave my only son, my only son to die in your place 
and to rise again to say, I love you. And I'm always with you. Trust me. And so we walk into this moment in Psalm 25, God's word, and what do we find? Psalm 25 is a prayer. It's a prayer. The psalmist has run into the presence with all of his mess and all of his baggage and all of his pains, and he runs into the presence of the Lord, and that's what we get in Psalm 25. He says in Psalm 25, verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. How do you know it's a prayer? Because of that word, you. You, to you, O Lord. It's vertical language. And you know what else is beautiful? The Psalms are, by definition, what? Songs. These things are sung. A praying church is a singing church. Because I don't know if you quite caught it, but every song we sung this morning was a prayer. Not just words to sing, but you find that word you and you realize all of a sudden we just shifted. We just hit the launch pad and went straight up. And we said, oh God, you're here. I know you're here. And I want to talk to you. That's what the psalmist is doing here. A praying church is aware of God's loving presence. It's aware of his loving presence. If you follow the setting of Psalm 25... The setting of Psalm 25 is preceded by Psalm 24. And what's happening in Psalm 24 is this sense of wholehearted surrender. And you've got the Ark of the Covenant about ready to go through the gates of Jerusalem and to be placed into the temple. And there's this sense of excitement that the presence of God is going to be in the city of God, among the people of God. And there's this, this thrill. Oh, lift up your head, O oh gates. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's just a sense of God is going to come in and be among his people. So he's like, gates of Jerusalem, get excited. Get excited. Jesus is, or the Lord is coming into the presence. Let's do this. That's the setting of Psalm 24. Confidence, joy exuberance psalm 25 is a struggle and it's not an accident that they're back to back we need the presence of god in the struggles of god's people and that's what we see in psalm 25 how do i know it's a struggle look at verses 15 to 18 he says my eyes are ever toward the lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. What's the image? He feels trapped. Have you ever felt that way? Trapped by people, trapped by circumstances, trapped by the unknown. But he's saying, even though I don't know what the result will be, my eyes are ever fixed towards you. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious because I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged bring me out of my distresses the enlarged heart is a really striking image you've heard the phrase when it rains it pours right you've lived that before right it's 
Isn't it ironic? Like things can be going like really smoothly, but then it's rarely that just kind of one difficult thing happens. They like come in clumps and it's like, what's that about? You know, what's the clumping? And it's like when it rains, it pours. It's like my heart is enlarged with trouble. But the other sense might be that even if it's just one thing that you feel weighty about, the more you think on the one thing, the more it seems to grow. The pain deepens, the difficulty expands. Whatever it is, this psalmist is in need of deliverance, and he's describing it as a heart about to burst at the seams with pain. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all of my sins. And so some of the pain is happening from without and some of the pain is happening from within. And it doesn't have to even be like, oh, is it 70-30 or 60-40? It's just a mess, a clump. It's all pain. It's all difficulty. But what does he do with it? He goes vertical. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The crucial lesson here is he takes his pain into the presence of the Lord. The Lord wants his pain. Even in verse 20, he goes to say, O Father, guard my soul. Protect my faith. Comfort my heart. Rescue me. Don't let my faith give way. For I take refuge in you. This is a lament psalm. But how does he choose to handle his pain? Not by stuffing it and acting like everything's great. And not by primarily focusing in on, look at all those those people are doing to me. But by primarily saying, I take it to you. You're my hope in the midst of my pain. So if you want to summarize prayer in one word. What does it mean to be a praying church? If you summarize prayer in one word, the word is presence. This psalmist is convinced, not only in sunshiny days, but in rainy days, his God is present. He's there. Prayer is called many things. Talking to God, listening to God, resting in God, waiting on God, silent conversation with God, abiding with God. But it is, at its core, sharing your heart, asking for mercy, forgiveness. It's running into his presence. It's just this acknowledgement that he's with you. We have been so sometimes trained that you've got to do it a certain way in order to kind of be heard. And it's not about your words. It's about your posture. And I ain't talking about knees or hands up. I'm saying it's about your heart. Do you know he's there? And he wants you. That's where it begins. God, you're here. And let's just make sure we're clear. I'm not just talking in abstract. Right now. Right now. Supernaturally. Beautifully. We are in the presence of the living God. 
We've said this before. Hebrews even says when we are singing songs together, Jesus is the lead worshiper. When we pray, we're talking to God and acknowledging his presence. When we read his word, we're acknowledging that he is here with us. When we confess our sins, we are running into his presence for refreshments. He's here. And it's not just on a Sunday morning. This is the point. My prayer has been, oh God, strike us with an awareness over and over that at every moment of every day, at any time, our God is with us. And he loves us. He loves us. Because how does Psalm 25 describe this kind of prayer thing? This, this what's happening with the psalmist and God? He describes it in one word as friendship. Verse 14, look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Do you know what the literal of the word friendship is? It actually is like secret counsel. And when it's used in other places, it's got this idea of, you know how you might share a lot of things with a lot of people, but you only share certain things with certain people. And what you share with certain people is built upon that level of trust and the depth and intimacy of that friendship. That's what it is right here. It is this sense of you tell everything. To the one who knows you the best. Intimacy. That's how the psalmist understands this moment. This God who's going to counsel and encourage and be with and love. There is closeness and intimacy. Presence. He is with you. There are times that in the middle of the night I can't sleep. I don't know if you go through some of those times, but I go through them. Yeah, semi-often, sometimes seasons more often than others. And many times it's because I'm anxious. I'm either anxious in the middle of the night. Sometimes I can get anxious in the middle of the day. Anxious about the future. Anxious about and fearful about loss. Reflective on how much I need to grow and feeling overwhelmed of kind of all I have to do. There's usually a buffet of options on why I'm anxious, and I can really spend a lot of time there thinking on that buffet. In those moments, I feel it like a tug of war. You know tug of war, right? Team on the left, team on the right, sometimes a mud pit in the middle, and you're pulling so that the one who loses falls flat on their face in the mud. The other team laughs and jokes. So right now, in the moments of sleepy, sleeplessness, I feel like there's team anxious and team presence. Team anxious seems like it's going to win pretty regularly. Because team anxious yells at me a lot. Yells at me in the middle of the night and tells me what I need to do. And tells me that I've got to solve the problems that are before me. And it feels like I'm about to fall face first into the gunk. And then I will be like, oh God, help me. I run into team presence and there's this sense of pulling. God, you are with me. You're present right now. I'm praying your promises. But the other team just seems to pull a little harder, right? Sean, get your act together. You got to do more. It all rests on you. The future's going to fall apart. And it spikes. And you really do. You just feel like you're going to fall. 
But as I'm going, I remember who always wins this tug of war. I might fall several times in pulling, but my Lord is always there. Team presence will always win. What does that mean experientially? Well, I can stay afraid for quite a long time. Most of the time, I got to get up out of bed and I got to go to another space. And as I'm going to another space, I remember God's word. And I remember that word and prayer are stuck together. And so I just began to pray some promises. Short phrases like this. God, you're with me. You'll never leave me. You are in control, so I don't have to be. You love me. And you will not do bad to me. You will not withhold good from me. Although I can't see the future, you can. I feel weak. You are strong. You are the supply to my great need. Just phrases, short bursts, over and over. What are your phrases? I encourage you, if you don't have phrases, spend some time stockpiling phrases. Know where they are. Write them down. Because in your moment of weakness... It'll feel like team anxiety is going to pull you in the mud. You need short phrases. Your prayer bursts when you get stressed and can't sleep. But you got to build them off of the word. These aren't just like think good things and hope good thoughts. It's where do I get these short phrases, these promises, the security. It's the fact that my God promises these things. And that's what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 25. Look at Psalm 25 verses 8 and 10. The psalmist knows he needs short bursts in order to overcome the fear and the pain. And he says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Just think about that. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in the way. Father, you will instruct me. You will lead me in your time. You will make me humble. And I surrender my plans and my heart and my deepest fears to you. And I'm reminded that all of your paths, you see that there, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love. I'm reminded all of your paths are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who are yours. You turn it into a prayer because this is God's word. This is confidence. You know this is true. This is who he is for you when it feels like anxiety is going to win. This is who he is. And neatly, as you grow in studying God's word, all of a sudden, certain words will kind of leap off the page. Because when you hear steadfast love and faithfulness, because we've just gone through the Pentateuch, the Torah, first five books of the Bible, what you're supposed to hear is when God tells his name to Moses. Because in verse 7, it already says, bring your goodness to me. The word goodness is found in Psalm or Exodus 34. What is the goodness of the Lord? He says, I'll make my goodness pass by you. And then he says his name to Moses. And he says, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How did the psalmist know that to be true? Because the stories of old, his Bible, have told him the, the truth that our God from of old is steadfast love and faithfulness. How do you know it to be true? Because God is speaking to us in his word that he is steadfast love and faithfulness. But I don't feel it, Sean, but it's true. 
And so you take all that confusion, all that discouragement, and you run it into the presence of the Lord. I wrote in my journal one morning, when facing anxiety and discouragement, your presence is my greatest security. And your presence is my greatest weapon against discouragement and confusion and anger and fear. His presence. Why? Because when we're saying presence, we're not talking about, yeah, he's with you, but he's mean. He's with you and he's love. Steadfast love and faithfulness. So what we're talking about is his loving presence. I think about this with my kids a ton. When my kids were younger and they were fairly helpless to accomplish so many things in their life, I knew this one thing, that I loved them. I loved them. And what's that mean? Because I love them, earthly speaking, I'm kind of in control of their environment in, in many ways. And so, you know, I can say, like, you don't have to be afraid. I'll get you food. You got homework? I'll be present to help you with the homework. You know, in kindergarten, I think I can accomplish some of those things. Now, my presence is not going to be very helpful when you get to algebra. But, you know, the point here is they're young. They're helpless. I can help. And I will give them good things. I'll give them time with friends or toys or TV time or some games. But I'll do it in appropriate measure with limits, right? Why? Because I love them. And what do they think? No, you don't. Unlimited is love. But I know I love them. And I have a perspective that's completely different than a five-year-old. And if they only knew how much I love them, then they would not be afraid. Because they would know I will give them everything they need. How much more? How much more? When God says, I love you, can we trust him? With if we're honest, we're just so out of control. And that's what makes us angry and afraid. But he's not out of control. And that's why Jesus says, Sean, if you who are evil, I'm imperfect and I got a corrupt heart apart from Jesus. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do I know how to give what you need? And in Luke, he says, to give the Holy Spirit, I give myself. I'm present with you. And my presence is a steadfast love and faithfulness presence. It's a loyal love and it always keeps its word because I'm with you. This is what brings you into prayer. So much of our prayerlessness is because we don't believe God is good. Or he's too busy to spend time with us. He is good and he is always present. And so bring him all that you are. A praying church is aware of his presence. And a praying church desires his loving presence. Let's just sit on the word desire for just a second. Look at Psalm 25 verse 1, the beginning again. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O God, in you do I trust. It's interesting. The word lift here 
is the same word that's used for lift in the previous psalm. And when I read the previous psalm, I don't quite understand what it means for a gate to lift up its head. Like, does that fall a little flat on you sometimes? Lift up your heads, O gates. It's like, what do you mean? I don't get it. These inform each other. So when the psalmist is saying, I lift up to you my very heart. When you read this phrase in other places, it is, I give you all of my desires. And when the gate lifts up its head so that God's presence might come in, it is this discussion or this metaphor that says, all of Jerusalem wants the presence of God. Lift up your head and desire for the presence of God to come in. This is what's happening. The psalmist is lifting up its whole being and say, I want you here with me. And I give you my soul. But we know by experience, desire is not always there. Do I get an amen? Yep. It's not always there. And so sometimes our lack of desire is because we're not feeding ourselves with good things, right? That happens. That happens. The goodness of things brings out desire, but time shapes desire. The more time you spend with him, the desires begin to come, and that's just how it works. So feed your heart with time with him and watch desire come. Don't wait for desire in order to spend time with him. That's the point. But sometimes desire is interrupted because of pain. And I think that's where the psalmist can be at times. You see this in verse 2. Oh God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. There's this sense of just, I'm afraid about being attacked. I'm afraid they're going to, get one up, they're going to be seen as one who is, who is winning and I'm going to kind of lose in your name. Like, is, what is going on? Help them not rejoice over me. Don't let wicked win. And I just began to think, isn't it shocking how much we can let the foot off of the gas spiritually when things are going well? Just sit there for a second. When things are easy... Spiritually speaking, it's just amazing how sometimes imperceptibly the foot just lets off and all of a sudden you realize you ain't going nowhere. How'd that happen? It can lull us to sleep. And God in his kindness, he allows the crisis so that you would love Christ. He ordains the difficulty so you would engage in prayer to resist the devil. And he permits the trouble so you and I would sit with him in utter dependence and surrender. And that's why when we look back at trials, we hate the pain. We don't want the pain. But we love the season because it's there where we've really met with God. So the psalmist is crying out in his or her pain because there's this sense that I'm desperate and I need your love to show up in a powerful way. Another reason that desire is hard is distraction. Have you ever sat down to read and pray 
you got 10 minutes and now like eight of them are filled with thinking about something completely different, but you gave it a good college try. It's like, where did all of that come from? It's amazing how your mind will wander and default to social media or news or sports articles. Or it's amazing how much your roommate or your spouse will come in innocently, but just unexpectedly in these moments that you've carved out in order to spend time with the Lord. Or your kids will have questions. Or your dog all of a sudden has more needs than ever before. This is my dog. <laughs> like, I'm spending time with Jesus. Don't you see this? And my dog doesn't seem to care. We're praying for her salvation, but it's not happening. Or the notifications on your phone. Or the thought of, oh, I forgot to pay that bill. Or, oh, I forgot to check on this. Or, oh, man, they needed this. Here's what I do. I've got a note on my phone, and I write all of those things down so that I can set it there, and I can run back into his presence. So I have a post-it note, something, but this is life. Don't be discouraged. The devil's agenda is discouragement. The Lord's agenda is love. Don't be discouraged. Don't let it paralyze you. Label yourself a failure. I can never do this. No, run back in. And praise the Lord for the three minutes that you set your mind on him. Don't allow the discouragement to define your walk with the Lord. Keep running back to him. Because as Pastor Ronjour said so beautifully last time, what if you only got 10 minutes to read the word? That's not the point. The point is, okay, let's say you got two minutes to read the word. And there's just been one sentence that you read. The point is... Oh, that's it. That's all I can spend with the Lord. No, he's with you all the time. Take the one sentence and just ask the Lord to keep bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back. This is the beauty of spending time with the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but Nick Saban, Alabama coach, yes, desperate for an illustration once again as a UT fan, but he retired this week from college football. And he is known for, and did, was that an amen? Did I hear? Did I hear? For, for Tennessee fans, probably it's an amen. Um, anyway, he is known for talking about the process. Stick with the process. What does he mean by that? He means be faithful in the small things and don't worry about the outcome. If you want to take it in the way Jesus says it, it is faithful in the small things and trust the Lord with the outcome. But the point is this. Change does not happen in one big cannonball splash moment. It happens in 1,000 little moments day after day. Nick Saban, I was told, Nick Saban at the end of every Friday practice would say this. Every day is broken down into two decisions. There's something that I know I'm supposed to do and I know I have to do in order to be the best me I can. Am I willing to do that? The second decision is there's something over here that I know I should not do, but I really want to do. Will I do it? Two decisions every day. And Jesus says, choose life. Be in my presence. Know I love you. Impress everything through the grid that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
When you face these moments, it's not simply about, oh, I blew it. I got distracted. It's not just about your will. It's a tapping into God's promise supply. I call it the triple A's. I've mentioned this here before. Awareness, abiding, and acting. God, I'm aware that you're here. And I'm going to sit, even for just a few seconds, and I'm going to say, you are steadfast love and faithful. I can trust you. And then I act. I act. I just finished the book, um, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. It's got some helpful things. It's got some uh, unique things, but it's got some really helpful things. And he just says, maybe make it a practice that every time you begin to act or do something, just do a, a one, five-second shout-out prayer. Lord, I need you. You're here. Let's do this together. And after you're done with a task, just say, God, thank you. Or I trust you. Or something like that. And just begin to make it a practice. And you will fail through this a lot. But what happens is the more you begin to fight for the presence of God in your life, the more you begin to know he's there and joy comes. Joy does come because in his presence is fullness of joy. That's why God has said, my house, the place where I dwell my house is a house of prayer because God knows you are so desperate and needy. You need him all the time. And he wants us to just be a talking to God, relating to God kind of people. And friends, when you're distracted, when you're battling sin, the devil wants you to hide. He wants you to act like you don't have problems inside. Like everybody else is your problem. And what happens out of that is a discouraging and complaining and cutting down other people kind of mouth. But deep down underneath that, there's just this insecurity that I cannot be wrong. Because if I'm wrong, my identity is crushed. I am a nobody. And God says, there's another narrative. There's another story. You're guilty, but you're loved. And so bring the guilt into my presence. I already know you've done it anyway. So who are you hiding from? What you see by the psalmist is a unique sense of no fear to bring his guilt into God's presence and to say, I am guilty, cleanse me. Isn't that what you see in Psalm 25? Remember, verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. They're, they're not saying I'm not sinning or I didn't sin in the past. They're just saying, oh God, don't keep counting it against me. Help me walk in forgiveness. And then he says in Psalm 25, verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. They are keenly aware of their sin. And a praying church repents in his presence. Doesn't try to solve or fix their heart. They just run into his presence because Acts 3 says that's where refreshment is found. Friends. Bring all of you, not just part of you. No pretense, all of you. And watch just the outlouding to God of your struggles. Watch him cleanse you and change you on the spot. Because the Lord's goal in praying is not condemning you, but changing you. Reassuring you that he loves you. And so in Psalm 25, verse 21, he says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me. Would you make me man of integrity, of, of, of uprightness? 
because I wait for you. And as we conclude, this idea of waiting is what characterizes a praying church. A praying church waits in his presence. How many of us love to wait? Absolutely no one. I love to wait, said no one ever. I've been reading a book by Andrew Murray called Waiting on God, and he uses this analogy. What if you know that a military is to advance into an enemy territory, you've given them what you thought they needed, and all of a sudden they're not advancing? You might go to them and then say, why are you waiting? And they say, we are waiting on supplies. Or we're waiting for further instructions. Why? Because they know that once they have all that they need, they can walk forward in confidence. This is the posture of the prayer. I need God's presence with me. I need to be assured of his love. I need his instruction and guidance. I need confidence in his character. And then I can walk forward and trust his providence and not be afraid. But who's the psalmist waiting on? It says, I wait, what are the last two words? For you. I wait for you. Look at Psalm 25, verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. Prayer is for asking and for calling out and for crying out. But the goal of prayer is to be with God. More than clear direction, more than joy in my heart, more than money in my hand or a house or car or land or a fixed marriage or kids or a job or job security or having my own way or an ease of parenting kids or whatever it is. More than anything else, friendship or wanting to be heard or sexual pleasure or being liked or praise, the psalmist says, I wait for you. Because if I have you, I have everything I need. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. There's no rival. I don't want any rival beside you. My flesh and my heart, they get weak. They desire all over the place. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my life and my portion forever. The Lord is your enough. He is your comfort. He sees you and knows you. And dear friends, he calls us to run into his presence in prayer. And so the prayer is, Lord, make us, Treasuring Christ Church, a praying church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask by the power of your spirit, you would Help us to know you're here. Make us aware of your presence and give us desire to run into your presence. And Father, protect us from pretense so that we might repent in your presence. And Father, I pray that we would say with Jesus, not our will, but yours be done. And we would wait for you. And we would say with the psalmist in Psalm 27, one thing have we asked and that we will seek that we may dwell in your house, in your presence all the days of our life. 
Father, give us that singularity of desire and focus and help us as we're all over the place to just be faithful each day, trusting the process, faithful in the small things and trusting you with the outcome. Please, Father, make us a praying church. And right now in a spirit of prayer, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you love Jesus and are a follower of Jesus, this meal is a reminder of what you've said at your baptism, which is I have died to sin and Jesus has made me alive in my heart and I love him and I want to live for him. And so for just a few seconds, we're going to sit and I just want you to give your heart to the Lord. Maybe there's one thing that the Lord has stirred in your heart. What is that next step? What's one thing you want to do in the next week just to sit and to be with the Lord? What does that look like? Make this moment a moment of surrender, and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. Let's sit in his presence together.